I want to welcome everyone to the forum today. And um, this is a huge, huge, huge topic um, that I had to condense to within about 45 minutes. So who's ever heard of the Truth Project? Okay, you, that goes for 12 hours, doesn't it? Something like that? Well, uh, this is all condensed into <laughs> 45 minutes. So. But we won't cover all of that. Just something from there. Before we do start, let's invite the Lord. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for your many blessings to us. We pray that your truth will come out this morning for the skeptics, for those that are on the fringes on the border. We pray that you would bring them in to see your truth and that they would give their lives to thee and be able to convey this truth to other people, whoever they meet in this world. Bless this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what is truth? Um, the reason we're really having this forum is because, Edmund, uh, we want to talk about what truth is. We want to become aware of four main worldviews. We'll get into that, what that means. Uh, we want to sort of show you some of the resources for combating the, um, these worldviews that oppose our worldview of Christianity. And we want to give you some examples of how the worldviews have adversely affected uh, not only our countries, but our churches, um, and how we as Christians need to respond to what we've learned. So there's a uh, quote from the book, How Shall Now We Live, by Chuck Colson. He was the infamous Watergate, uh, uh, what do you call it, henchman for, for Robert, uh, Richard Nixon. Uh, he said that church's single failure in recent decades has been the failure to see Christianity as a life system or a worldview that governs every area of existence. Edmund? Um, as a worldview is really a set of presuppositions which hold, uh, we hold about our basic makeup of the world. Now, a presupposition is not a truth. It's an assumption. And the assumption could be true or false. Okay? A worldview, in other words, is a sum total of all what we believe about the most important issues in life. Some formal worldviews are Christianity, secular humanism, that means that you can attain ethical moral worth without God, Marxism, we, know, we most know of, postmodernism, which is the one that we're going to focus on, one of them in this, in this forum, Islam, New Age, atheistic materialism or naturalism, and then paganism, which is worship of impersonal gods. Which way is the right way? Um, why are we studying this? Why are we looking into this? Because what we believe really affects uh, what we do. What is really real to us? What does it matter which path we take? Our beliefs lead to things like drug use, inf uh, infidelity, immoral choices. Very seldom does the world view match our worldview match any single worldview. We take in um, ideas and aspects from other worldviews. We buy into things consciously or subconsciously, and that determines what we feel and think. As Christians, we can end up conforming to the world. The scripture says in Romans 12, 2, Be not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. Um, we're living in very difficult times. Uh, this I've taken from the Truth Project itself, some of the things that he's uh, um, come up with. We probably live in the most anti-intellectual period of the church. God wants us to use our minds and have a new heart. People are seeking a mystical experience, but bypass hard study. They bypass the mind, and they just do what they feel like doing. Do we understand and trust the truth claims of God? Now, this is a uh, portrait of Christ before Pilate, and Pilate was the one that actually asked Christ what is truth after he said this. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And we have to realize that this is not just something that's happening in the world by chance, or, or it happens to be their, their thing to do. We're in a cosmic battle. We're in a real battle. You know, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world and against spiritual wickedness in high places. 
you remember this scene uh, in the Old Testament when Moses was going, uh, he actually performed a miracle. Up come the magicians for Pharaoh, and they imitate him or try to counterfeit what he did. And so this is what is quoted in 2 Timothy 3.8. As Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so these also resist the truth. We've got competing beliefs. We've all seen this on a bumper sticker, right? But we've also seen this one. And we've also seen this one. But I like this one better. Okay. Definition of truth. Truth is defined as that which corresponds to reality and that which actually describes the state of affairs. And truth is absolute and narrow by nature because it excludes the opposite. You can't say 2 plus 2 equals 4 and say, well, it could be 4.5 or 3.7. Truth, if it's absolute, excludes everything else. Absolute truth is discovered. It's not invented. It's not created. You don't create truth. It's discovered. You come upon it. Um, it's conveyed across different cultures. What is absolute should be valid for any culture. Beliefs, its truth is unchanging. It doesn't change with time. Uh, beliefs cannot change a true statement, no matter how sincere we are, and no matter what kind of an attitude the person professing it has. All truths are absolute, not relative, and truth is knowable, although perhaps not now for some of us Christians. There are basically two or three laws that sort of govern the logic in truth. The law of non-contradiction says two opposite statements cannot be true at the same time in the same sense. That is, if we make the statement God exists, then it's opposite. God does not exist, cannot be true at the same time. If one is true, the other must be false. That's law number one. Some more uh, qualifications of that. This is a universal law, cannot be refuted. Any true statement requires that its converse cannot be true. Postmodern relativists and pantheists reject this law. But that is not the same as actually refuting the law. By saying, I don't accept that, you haven't proved it's, it's, it's wrong. Okay? In the, the Christian definition of truth, we as Christians believe that we live in a theistic universe with a God who is involved and understands character of his creation. Therefore, what he says about his creation is true and authoritative. God has created man in his image with the ability to understand truth and know reality. The correspondence theory is supported in the Old Testament and the New. And let's skip this slide. This more. I'm going to, what I'm going to do, I'm going to be really motoring on through these slides for the reason is that we're not going to get through them all here. But they'll be available on the PowerPoint, so I'm going to try to highlight the ones I think we should discuss here. So hopefully this is what's going to happen in each of our minds by the time we have this forum. Okay, so what, how do you develop a worldview? I borrowed this from a very old man in New Zealand. His name is uh, Dick Tripp. I asked him his permission, but this was his understanding. He's been studying this topic for a long, long time. And uh, he came up with seven questions that we can ask ourselves to formulate our own view. Now, Ravi Zacharias has got four questions. We'll get to that. But he's got seven. What is prime reality? What is the real real? What is the nature of uh, external reality? That is the world around us. What does it mean to be a human being? What happens to a person at death? Why is it possible to know anything at all? How do we know what is right and wrong? And what is the meaning of human history? So Ravi's is this. Where did I come from? Where does evil come from? What is the meaning of life? And where am I going to? The answers to these questions are very important. They determine what our goals in life are, what, how we make decisions, how we treat each other and value ourselves, our attitude to, towards material possessions, uh, how we face death, uh, knowing what is wrong with the world and how to fix it, how we relate to human need, family structure, those outside our community, human rights or government, and last but not least, our actions reveal our beliefs. Though recognising we don't always walk the talk, our actions often show what we really believe while in actuality our beliefs should determine our actions. So let's examine four of them. Atheism, New Age Hindu Buddhism, which is Eastern religion, Christianity, and postmodernism. So atheistic 
uh, materialism. Their seven questions, this is how they respond. For reality, it's a material universe. Whatever you see, that's it. There's nothing beyond. You can explain everything with what you see. Human, oops, humans, uh, they, their consciousness and intelligence evolved from chemicals, which we heard from Brother Edmund the other night is not true. Uh, how we, do we know these things? Knowledge is a result of physical process in our brains. Uh, meaning of uh, life, as no intelligent uh, being planned it, life has what meaning humans choose to give it. And death, that's it. You die, you're gone, no more. Right and wrong, what is decided individually in groups? What wherever we decide as governments, as households, that's what's right and wrong. History has no meaning, no purpose at all. Atheism is a religion. You've, who's heard of Richard Dawkins? Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, not so much. But uh, these three are known as, uh, even by their own uh, uh, co-laborers in this field, they've been admonished because of their tactics, the way they've approached things. And uh, they are not so much as atheists, they are more anti-atheists. So they really have a religion of their own. They go preaching in circuits against uh, Christianity. Mock them, ridicule them. Can you imagine them laughing like that at the time of Noah and the flood? And then all of a sudden the sky is open? Atheism is at war with Christianity. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and everything that exalteth itself above the knowledge of God. How do we respond to people's questions on evolutions? You know, my daughter called me up one day. Sarah, she's in college. She said, Dad, this girl at, at school, she started telling me God doesn't exist. They proved it scientifically. Da, da, da. I didn't know what to say. So <laughs> we live about an hour away. So I sent her some links, some of these links that you will see here to show that it's not true that scientists have proved things. It's not true at all. We're, we're going to look into that. There is so much material out there which propagates the Darwinian theory. There's also a tremendous amount of material giving evidence that the universe was created by some higher intelligence. And by the way, we are not going to prove scientifically that God exists. But we do have evidence that God exists. And we do have faith. If we, did, if we could prove it, we wouldn't have to have faith. So keep that in mind. There's always going to be another argument on top of yours. But in the end, it's going to come down to what you believe by the evidence you've been given. What is the evidence that God exists? We're going to get into that. Next slide. Swedish researchers have released the first clear video ever taken of an electron riding on a light wave. Scientists used a device called a quantum stroboscope to freeze the electron's motion at different stages, just as you would freeze a hummingbird's wings in flight using a regular stroboscope. The resulting video has been slowed down and looped to show the motion clearly. For MSNBC.com, I'm Alan Boyle. Okay, so what we've seen there, science, the very science that people like Dawkins and Hitchens and company are trying to use to disprove Christianity, we're getting deeper and deeper and it's more and more revealing things that Darwin was wrong about. We can see the electron. Who would ever thought, you know, 10 years ago, we could see an electron. And now they've gone down quarks and uh, Hobbes, what is it, bosons, uh, particle, right? This is a former atheist, Anthony Flew. Video. Professor Anthony Flew of England and Reading University is the world's foremost academic atheist over the last 50 years and the author of more than 30 books. His first debate with former atheist-turned-Christian C.S. Lewis in 1950 in Oxford, England, was the first time he advanced his argument for atheism. He later wrote a paper titled Theology and Falsification. The paper became the most widely reprinted philosophical publication of the last half century and a key foundation for atheists and agnostics who advanced materialist evolutionism. Flew's main theses were that the universe is eternal, it has always existed and always will, that life is a random process, the result or accidental product of chemical interactions. And third, the existence of God is a self-contradiction and evil is not compatible with the existence of God. That is to say, we start and stop with the universe itself. 
with the everyday world of common sense and common experience and with those hidden mechanisms of that world uh, which are progressively revealed by the advance of science. But now it is the advancement of science itself that has changed the mind of Flu and some scientists. At a recent summit at New York University, Flu changed his position and now believes in God as the creator of the universe. It is all, in my view, a matter of the enormous uh, complexity by which the results were achieved, which looked to me like uh, the work of intelligence. Who discussed the points with Professor Gerald Schroeder, who was with the Wiseman Institute of Jerusalem and MIT, and Professor John Haldane of the University of St. Andrews. Flew turns to various discoveries of science to prove his point. From the fossil records showing the sudden appearance of a fully developed life to the emergence of visual consciousness across the animal kingdom to the basic need for reproduction. But it is the manifestation of life written in DNA and the transcription of DNA to RNA and RNA into protein and the subsequent process of protein folding that makes the best case for flu. Uh, what, what I think that the DNA material has done has shown by its almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which uh, lead to produce uh, this being, uh, that uh, intelligence must have been involved in uh, getting these extraordinarily diverse elements um, uh, to work together. He's talking about the most amazing bacteria. aspect of the bacterial flagellum to me is, actually I can't limit it to, to one aspect. You have the, the motor itself, very sophisticated. Howard Berg at Harvard, I've heard him speak several times, has, has labeled it the most um, efficient machine in, in the universe. And the fact that it you know, runs normally in E. coli, 17,000 RPMs, two gears, forward and reverse, water-cooled, proton motive force, it's hardwired to a signal transduction system that has short-term memory. That's fascinating. But then when you step back and look at the genetics in terms of the program, the blueprint to build this, you find even a, another layer of complexity. That the genes, it's just not enough to have the 50 genes required, that we find that they're, they're fired or expressed in a given sequence. And that there are checks and balances that if there's a problem in assembly that feeds back at the genetic level and says shut down expression and that there are gatekeepers there's communication molecularly at a distance i mean a significant distance that you build a scaffold on the end of this thing as it's protruding from the cell and it's feeding back and saying okay we've got enough of that subunit now send the next subunit we don't understand how this works yet but it's Fascinating. I mean, it's, and it's something that I could spend the rest of my life studying. It's so um, intriguing in terms of how this system works. What he's just described is an electric motor for the electrical engineers out there. Fascinating. And it gener generates itself. Who's behind this? I think we know. Even if Miller's experiment were valid, you're still light years away from making life. It comes down to this. No matter how many molecules you can produce with early Earth conditions, plausible conditions, you're still nowhere near producing a living cell. And here's how I know. If I take a sterile test tube and I put in a little bit of fluid with just the right salts, just the right balance of acidity and alkalinity, just the right temperature, the perfect solution for a living cell. And I put in it one living cell. This cell is alive. It has everything it needs for life. Now I take a sterile needle and I poke that cell and all its stuff leaks out into this test tube. You have in this nice little test tube all the molecules you need for a living cell. Not just the pieces of the molecules, but the molecules themselves. And you cannot make a living cell out of them. You can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. So what makes you think that a few amino acids dissolved in the ocean are going to give you a living cell? It's totally unrealistic.
the reason I'm giving you these videos, they're just snippets of what's out there for your kids that ask you questions at home. There are many resources that we can use. Uh, Worldview number two, I'm not even going to go through it much. The key point here is many gods, they want to become one with nature and there is really no purpose in life. Uh, Their sin is that they don't know enough, they're not enlightened enough to know about all these things. And if they've been bad and they die, they get uh, reincarnated into another life. And you know all about that as well. That's next. Keep going. So, meaningless in life. Is it true? When he says life has absolutely no meaning, it's like a twig, uh, you know, flowing on the sea of nothingness or something, you ask him if that definition is meaningful. If the statement is meaningful. You see, it is not possible to debunk meaning while making a meaningful statement about life itself. Uh, I said to a student at the University of the Philippines in Manila, who stood up at the end of one of my talk and shouted out and said, ah, everything in life is meaningless. I said, you don't believe that. He said, I do. I said, no, you don't. He said, yes, I do. I said, you don't. He said, who are you to tell me I don't? I said, stand up and say it again. He said, everything in life is meaningless. I said, I assume that you assume that what you just said was meaningful. And if what you've just said was meaningful, then everything is not meaningless. On the other hand, if everything is meaningless, then what you've just said is meaningless too. You basically said nothing. You can sit down. (laughs) Okay, the real worldview, I believe we all know what the real worldview is. And by the way, when you talk about worldviews, you normally talk about what they call the meta-narrative, the big story. And atheism has got its big story, right? The primordial glue and all that kind of stuff and how it grew and evolved over time and chance. Uh, Christianity, we believe that there is one God, that he's a personal God, that he's eternal and he wants to make a relationship with his creation. Uh, matter is created by God and it's good. Humans have been created in his likeness, as we've mentioned, with self-consciousness, freedom of choice. God wants us to enter that loving relationship with him. We have messed up by our waywardness, but God acted in Jesus Christ to restore that fellowship. Death. We believe there is life beyond death. With God or without him. That's the scary part for those that don't believe. Um, Because the material creation matters and our bodies will be resurrected at Christ's second coming. Uh, God gave us intelligence to use, whether we un- uh, in understanding our universe or in the knowledge of Him. Morality. God is perfectly good. God created humans with the same, quali- same qualities of moral goodness. However, humans have misused freedom given them, and our moral natures have been warped. It's called sin. God makes His purposes known in history. God made Himself known to us through His revealing actions to chosen individuals, uh, history had a beginning and will culminate in the return of Christ and uh, God will make a new heavens and a new earth in which his people will live with him eternally. That's a big story. Now we come to this postmodernism. This is the fourth world view which I sort of likened to Daniel's uh, fourth beast in G- Daniel chapter 7. He looked at the first three and said, "Let me. I want to have a second look at this last beast. It's terrible. Okay? Thought timeline. From about 1300 BC, that was about the exodus of Israel from Egypt, till about 1740, it was mostly dominated by Judeo-Christian thought. And then around about 1740, things started to happen, and then about 1980, postmodern thought came into full swing. So if you look through the ages, you'll see the different types of thinking. And what they were trying to do in the Renaissance, in the medieval society, they were basically in the Dark Ages. They didn't know a lot. And then when they started to discover things through the scientific method and rationalism and so forth, uh, they began to question, you know, René Descartes was the one that said, I think, therefore I am. He had to actually doubt his existence to prove his existence. Um, uh, Enlightenment came with Sir Isaac Newton. Some of these were very godly men. I believe Isaac Newton was with these uh, laws of motion, uh, empiricism through David Hume. And they all tried to improve on each other because they were either dissatisfied with the previous one or they wanted to build on the previous one. 
we get to Immanuel Kant, a German who uh, uh, was very influential in Germany, until you get to Friedrich Nietzsche, I think that's how you pronounce his name, in 1844 to 1900. And he was the one that actually drove the nail into the coffin as far as the other theories are concerned, and uh, postmodernism sort of took uh, birth. Friedrich Nietzsche said, we are most, uh, he was most responsible for this transition, and he said that uh, truth is nothing more than an illusion. Okay? We construct our own world according to our own perception. There is no objective truth, and our own perception is what is true. Truth is a metaphor to him, illusion of, uh, of perception which appears real only because we have become so familiar with it. Now, modernism, the reason we went through all of that to modernism because uh, the world was gaining momentum in terms of hope and confidence and progress and, and they were beginning to solve their own problems, mechanization, labor problems, so forth. But in the end, they realized all the science and the rationalism and all that, 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 that sort of culminated, bang, it didn't answer their questions. They had war after war after war, plague after plague, and it's still going on today. And so they said, you know what? We're tired of being under this uh, oppressive, authoritative figure telling us what to do because it's not working. So everyone, you become your own author. Okay, so postmodernism. Reality, we create our own reality. God tends to be ignored, and should he or she or it in some people's minds Exists, he certainly has nothing to say about what we should believe or how we should behave. For truth and reason, there is no absolute truth. The author of the text is not significant. You, you take what you want home from what you read, because he's no longer the authority. I'll believe what I want to believe. Emotions, feeling, intuition, reflection, magic, myth, mystical experience, and our center stage, I know, has been replaced with I feel. Religion, it doesn't say you don't have to, you shouldn't worship. You can do what you want. They're consistent, right? Um, you can do what you want. Choose from the spread that's before you. It's like a buffet. Morality is relative. Each person culture develops their own moral values. It's not a question of is it right, but what will it do for me? Is it practical? Emphasis is placed and shaped on the, by the culture. Thus, there's a diminishing personal responsibility. Tolerance of other views is one of the pillars of postmodernism. However, they do not tolerate those who believe the truth to be important. Individualism, strong basis, emphasis on that. You can justify abortion. The, the, the court declared that it is up to each individual to determine the uh, concept of existence or meaning of the universe, mystery of human life. History, much is being rewritten. You know, all these things that have been coming up in the last 10 years or so, um, uh, the, what is it, the, the new gospels they've been finding, Brown's uh, uh, analysis of the world. What really happened is either unknowable, unimportant, and surveys indicate that 33% of Americans subscribe to a view that the Jewish Holocaust may never have happened. What did Eisenhower say when he walked into the first camp? Did anyone remember? He said, take pictures, because there's going to come a time where people are going to deny that it's ever happened. Postmodernism effects that have become very persuasive in literature, theatre, education, psychotherapy, and you name it, every field. Many writers have promoted this, Nietzsche, uh, Heidegger, Marx, Freud. It is similar to New Age thinking, this, this feeling thing, right? It's hardly a worldview as it is, uh, there is no any one big story that is able to make sense of our little stories. So let's skip this. Let's skip this. Okay, so modernism's trust in science and progress did not lead to the bright future promised. Hence, a major philosophical shift occurred, and that's where we come, as I mentioned, to postmodernism. Since truth is created or invented, there is no universal transcultural truth. Each culture or individual defined his own truth. Next. Next. We sort of covered this in, uh, in the previous. I want to get through this. You, you'd be able to look at it on the, on the, uh, the disc. Okay, let's, let's keep going. Okay, so what are some of the outcomes of postmodernism? We heard it. Postmodernistic thought leads to tolerance. 
Acceptance, refusal to accept or tolerate leads to bigotry, discrimination, bullying. This is a post from Facebook. I'm not going to mention who it was. You know who you are. I don't normally speak out, but it really frustrates me lately that while anyone can speak their mind, when Christians give their opinions, they are right away labelled as judgmental and unloving and shoving things down people's throats. Just because I voice an opinion different than others does not automatically imply that I am forcing it or that I am condemning those who believe differently. Is there not freedom of speech for Christians anymore? Are we not allowed to speak what we believe is truth? So you become the bad guy. Postmodernism provides... Keep going, we've done that. So this is what I sort of had at work once. You dare not come to the water cooler and make any mention about any other faith because everyone's accepted here. This is examples of postmodern art. I don't know what that means, but if somebody does, please let me know. (laughs) She's an artist. Oh, I thought she was just weird. I'm unique. Everyone trying to be unique tends to look similar to me. Always remember that you are absolutely unique, just like everyone else. I don't know what this is, but maybe Ravi can explain it in the next slide, at the bottom. Some years ago, I was speaking at Ohio State University, and I was taken to see the Wexner Center of the Arts. And uh, they wanted me to see it, and I wondered why. And when I walked into that building, I said, what is the building all about? Well, there are staircases that go nowhere. There are pillars that serve no purposes. And the man driving me said, this is America's first postmodern building. And the architect said, if life itself has no purpose, why should our buildings have any design or any purpose? So he built it at random without any purpose, as it were. I said, I have one question for you. He said, what's that? I said, did he do that with the foundation as well? (laughs) So how does the world make decisions? Do you weigh the pros against the cons? Do you do what your parents taught you to do? Would I I do this if my mother was here? What what does my conscience tell me? Is it wrong if it's guilty? What my religion tells me? Is it the Bible, the Quran, Taoism? Not everyone plays by the same rules. What is wrong? What is right? Who makes the rules? Might makes right, whether it is in the strength of the individual or whether it's in a 51% majority vote. Some take the pragmatic approach. If it's best for society, then it's right. But how do we know what is best? Now, I just discovered yesterday that C.S. Lewis had a talk with Anthony Flew. He met him. He met him many years ago in that debate, but then he met him again in his own personal apartment or house. And... And, and, and C.S. Lewis was just so, tra- uh, I don't know what to call it, traumatized that he didn't know the answer to certain questions. And he says, do we act right because God wills it or God wills it and therefore it is right? You see the difference? Let's go. Next slide. So why, we, why do we do it? Lying is wrong because God cannot lie. This is not a practical issue because it is contrary to the very nature of God. God does not arbitrarily give us a set of rules. God is expressing to us his very nature. We are made in his image. We have to be like God. If God, there is no God, there are no purposive forces. There's no life after death. There's no ultimate foundation for ethics. There's no ultimate meaning for life. There's no free will. Uh, This is a very interesting one which I got from the Truth Project. There's a difference between morals and ethics. Uh, morals comes from the word moris, and it's how people behave in society. Ethos is representing ethics. It's a transcendent, transcendent standard or norm for our behavior. It crosses all boundaries, time and, and culture. Morality looks at what is. Okay? What is. But ethics looks at what it ought to be. The distinction can be obscured. In other words, what is is what's happening today. You take a survey, you take a poll, you look at what the normal thing is in society. It's normal to divorce at 51% or 60%, so it's not that bad. But what ought to be is something completely different. 
What does truth tell us? What does the word of God tell us? Um, that, that, keep going because uh, I want to move on. So there was another little episode in this line of thought. He was a Christian, actually, Joseph Fletcher. But he had problems trying to understand what do you do in certain situations where there, one thing could happen or another thing could happen. Which do you sacrifice? And he always says you should always go towards the, the uh, side of love. That's the, that's the greatest morality to love. So it's called situational ethics. So if you had something where it caused, caused you to break the law of God here, but it might hurt somebody of your beloved and cause extreme emotional pain, you might want to choose on this side. Euthanasia. Abortion. Right? Just think of all the suffering that that kid's going to go through because he doesn't have a father. So these kinds of thinking come into play. And that's a topic in itself. Next, next slide. Let's skip the survey. But this survey, keep going. Keep going. Okay. Go back. Okay. So right there. So what we have here is growth in Christian religion since 1990, 2008. Non-Christian religions went up 50%. Atheists and agnostics grew by 138%. Now, atheists and agnostics, according to one of the slides, is only maybe 1.5% of the American population, according to their survey. But they grew 150%. So think about that. It's the growth rate that's important here. The percentage of people adhering to Islam doubled in the States. This is only in the States, North American Mission Board survey. Eastern religions increased by 225%. What they're trying to say is uh, they're increasing faster than American Christianity is reaching them to change their views. Okay, keep going. I want to get through this very quickly. Keep going. Uh, some of the, some of the uh, stop right there. Some of the statistics is that it, it's, it's, it's amazing that only 10% or 20% of North American born again believers actually have a biblical worldview. That was one of the slides. But 69% of Americans claim to be Christians. That was one of the slides. Now think about that. And we're going to show you why that is. Here it is. We just talked about that. Next slide. Barner said, according to a study by Barner, George Barner, only 9% of all American adults, that's not narrowing down to Christians, but adults, have a biblical worldview. Keep going. I'm just giving you some snippets so you can look at that for yourself. Believing in the Bible. Uh, stop right there. Saved by, gra- uh, saved, by gra- saved by grace. What was it? Uh, 47% of born-again Christians strongly reject the works uh, salvation uh, argument. You would think that all of them would, but anyway. Uh, Christ was sinless, okay? So now we're getting into this, the last temptation of Christ movie that was coming out, all this propaganda. This is not, this is not occurring like on an individual basis. This is being orchestrated. This is being orchestrated by the devil, where he's bringing out all these so-called great thinkers, and they're saying that 40% of American adults believe that Christ lived a sinless life. 60% of those that are born again believe that Christ lived a sinless life. That means 40% of Christians did not, quote-unquote, believe that Christ lead, led a sinless life. That's astounding to me. So let's look at some examples. Who's heard of this woman? Now, I'm not picking her out, targeting her. I'm just showing you the influence she has and what she believes. Many of you know that already. Oprah is a predominant uh, uh, audience, is a predominantly female white over age of 50, 55, retirement age. Um, nationally, 7.4 million people watch Oprah daily, daily from American households. The, the ratio of women to men is three to one. Next slide. Video. Have you heard about the largest church in the world? The first service was March 3, 2008, with an attendance of over 300,000. 
The attendance is now over 2 million, and they conducted the first ever mass trance on March 17, 2008. What do they teach? Who you are requires no belief. Heaven is not a location, but refers to the inner realm of consciousness. The man on the cross is an archetypal image. He is every man and every woman. The leader's website teaches these lessons. My mind is part of God's. I am very holy. My holiness is my salvation. My salvation comes from me. Let me remember that there is no sin. Do not make the pathetic error of, quote, clinging to the old rugged cross, unquote. The only message of the crucifixion is that you can overcome the cross. Have you heard of this church, or maybe its leader? Years ago, she denied Jesus is the only way. The mistakes that human beings make is believing that there is only one way to live That's and right. that we don't accept that there are diverse ways of being in the world that there are millions of ways to be then a human how do being you please and, God? and many ways no but many paths many to what you call God that and her crazy. path might be something else and when she gets there she might call it the light but her loving and her kindness and her generosity brings her, if it brings her to the same point that it brings you, it doesn't matter whether she called it God along I the way. It could possibly be just one way. What, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? I got it. We are confusing. Well, she's got it. Um, the I am life force yes. with our body yeah. in the essence of all consciousness isn't something to believe God is yes God is and God is a feeling experience not a believing experience that's right and if and if you're if that your religion is a believing experience if God for you is still about a belief then it's not truly God I added that one Okay, so let's skip this one. We've heard enough. Um, these are some of the responses on the bulletin boards to her, her statements she made. And I can't believe that they just get suckered into this. They just believe it. And they, because she is a, she's an American icon. And 7 million a night watch her. Next. According to her own testimony, the turning point for her newfound beliefs was when the pastor in the church said that our God is a jealous God. And she said, jealous? What kind of a God is that that can be jealous? You know what? What was her problem? What was her problem? She didn't know what the meaning of jealous was. It's good to be jealous. It's very. It means to be so zealously protecting of your love, the one that you love. That's what jealous means. Next. Not in America. You say not in America? Yes, in America. Click. We're following another religious court case in Florida. It involves two Christians facing jail time for praying at a school-related event. A high school principal and an athletic director in Santa Rosa County led the prayer before a meal at a booster club meeting for adults. But a judge says that violates a federal court order banning school officials from leading prayers at school events. And the men could be fined or even sent to jail. The Liberty Council is defending them. Attorney Matt Staver joins us now by Skype. Matt, criminal charges for praying in front of adults, even possible jail time. What about their First Amendment rights? Well, Wendy, this is absolutely shocking that today we have somebody who is facing criminal contempt, jail time, and fines for merely praying or, in one case, being in the vicinity of someone who prays over a meal. That clearly flies in the face of the First Amendment and the history of America, which is based upon religious freedom and the fact that Judeo-Christian principles are foundational to the survival of the Christian principles are foundational to the survival of the Republic. Matt, what do you hope happens with this case? Well, first of all, I hope that the ACLU's agenda is stopped because the ACLU last year, they encountered a, and they embarked on a $300 million fundraising campaign to increase their activity in several targeted states, including Florida, but many others as well. What we're seeing today is a result of that increased activity of the ACLU. So we need to stop them in their tracks because they are trying to intimidate people of faith and public officials into silencing and eliminating faith in the public square. Next. Number. 
Meanwhile, Arizona Pastor Michael Salmon is now sitting in his jail after his home was raided by more than a dozen Phoenix police officers and city officials. What did they do wrong? Well, apparently, you can't hold private Bible studies on your own property, at least he couldn't. Joyce right now is the wife of that jailed Bible study leader, Suzanne Salmon, and from the Rutherford Institute, John Whitehead. Good morning, yeah, something so small got just so large like this, no, you know? No People kidding. do it all over the United States all the time, so. Right. Uh, his sentence is, and we're going to put up a graphic, 60 days in jail. He started his term on Monday. Three years yes. probation and a $12,180 fine. Shocking is beyond belief, but again, I'm seeing this as a pattern across the country. Sure. Uh, here's a quote from Vicki Hill, the chief assistant city prosecutor in Phoenix. She writes, it came down to zoning and proper permitting. Anytime you are holding a gathering of people continuously as he does we have concerns about people being able to exit the facility properly in case there's a fire and that really all comes uh, that's really all this comes uh, down to parked in in my driveway and alley and stuff like that look at the neighbors Swamp and team, right now we're taking a look at the the team that came and arrested him you you can have a big poker party in your neighborhood you can have a tupperware party in your neighborhood nobody gets in trouble but you say you have a private bible study and you get arrested 60 days in jail. Okay, conclusion. We're going to conclude with our discussion. Let's keep going. We know that objective truth is not dependent on the perspective attitude of individuals. We've gone through all that. God is our truth. Let's keep going. You can read all this. Two scriptures I want to leave you with. Second uh, Timothy 3.16 all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. God who embodies truth communicates his truth through language which has eternally existed with God. He uses this language to convey truth to the creatures created in his image. Okay, so um, I guess we had at the beginning of the slideshow some of the reasons we're going through this discussion today, some, some points. So I'm going to ask a question, and uh, I would like a lot of participation if possible. We've got 20 minutes, so I, I specifically stopped early for this. Now that you, I'm sure a lot of this is not new to you, but something was, some things were, and I'll start it off. Now that you know these things, uh, what would you do different in your life? How would you now... React. You know, one thing that really struck me in all of this, the, the one thing that came out to the foreground was, you know, we're, we're dealing with, with universal, cosmological, spiritual uh, uh, issues here, but at home we get so upset about the smallest little details. And where is our focus? That's what I got out of this. So... Let's talk about, for example, um, that second clip that we just had. Was, was that right or not? Uh, was, that, what, was the judgment correct about that uh, Arizona pastor, Phoenix? Okay, why? We've got, we got a microphone. Edmund's going to go around and if you want to make comments. I mean, where, where, where does state stop and, and Christianity start? Or where does Christianity stop and state start? Somebody had a, someone's got a comment. Someone said no. You've got to qualify that. Oh, now we, don't, we have witnesses. No one wants to come to the stand. Okay, no, because it was selective, like they pointed out. Uh, if targeted? You, yeah. If, the, if you've got a Tupperware party going on, you're okay. There's mm -hmm. no fire regulations and no problems. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. if it's about faith, then there's mm -hmm. a problem. Mm -hmm. You notice I talked about the ACLU, and I think it's the American Civil Liberties... Union. So they probably got their little spy cams out and say, oh, there's one, get him. <laughs> so I, I mean, I hate to kind of be the wrench in the works on this one, mm -hmm. um, but I did some research on it. Um, and it, what it identifies is the truth of, of the fact that media is biased no matter what. Mm -hmm. And it is relative and everyone's trying to make a case for something and so they don't share all the information. Mm -hmm. So in this case, um, there was over 200 people attending these Bible studies every week. And the city did have a concern about the fact that if there was a fire, <laughs> would everybody be able to get out because there were so many people? And whether we, 
you know, whether that should be happening or not, I don't think the way they presented it mm -hmm. about it being a religious thing is as strong of an impetus on the city's part in this case. Okay. That's why I'm... See, the truth shall set you free. You get all the facts? What about the previous one about the um, prayer? Did you, did you pick up on that? If you're near someone that's praying... How about that one? Let's... What do you think about that? No one wants to say anything now. They might be wrong. <laughs> I think it's ludicrous. Brother Ted. I believe that one of our elders was sued because they were counseling someone in a public restaurant and said that they were sinners. Whoa. Didn't say God's word says they were sinners. Mm -hmm. That they were sinners and therefore they're going to go to hell. Mm -hmm. So, yes, this has been coming. It has been coming very strongly. And there's going to be ahead of us. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to make sure that what we stand upon is the truth of the word, not our interpretation of that truth. Right. So, so let's stay, stay there. Um, let's say you had an opportunity to go to another place to counsel. Would you do it? Well, it, it, you could do it, or you could face the consequences of okay. possibility of being persecuted. See, see these are the, the gray areas. But let's say you met that person for the first time. You, you didn't know him. You could call someone to your house if you knew him. Oh, okay. <laughs> Tony. You know, this is really not um, surprising because the Bible speaks about that, that in latter days, people will be preaching the teaching in the ears. I mean, this is what the world is all about, and the Bible confirms that. Actually, events not confirm what the Bible is telling us. And so we should be like one of the parables that Christ told and the people of, of, of his time that we should be smart. We should be very intelligent in how we conduct ourselves uh, in promoting our Christian values and the truth in a way that wouldn't violate the laws of the state, but also will bring forth the truth. Once in a while you're going to get cornered and mm -hmm. probably you suffer for it. And depending mm -hmm. on your faith, you suffer accordingly, I guess. Mm -hmm. But we have to be smart as those, as, as the heathen are. Wise as serpents. Wise, right. Harmless as doves. Brother Mark. Just too quickly to um, jump on the, the tail end of that. Um, I think in probably both of these instances, there were laws or ordinances that were broken. Mm -hmm. And so the issue here is us being more familiar with and in tune with the laws as they're being made. And to the extent that um, there can be influence on that from a Christian worldview is mm -hmm. maybe where the emphasis should be. Mm -hmm. But we have to assume that that was the case in both of those. Okay. I was getting intimidated. As I was listening to these uh, clips, I said, well, that's nothing new. No. Our forefathers had the same situation when they were not allowed to gather, to preach openly. So maybe it's going to awaken the American Christianity out of their comfort of the Christianity. It's going to show who the true Christians are. So, good point. I mean, you had church and state in, in the old country. Uh, they were busted into their homes, were busted into, and, and they were taken away to prison. Uh, should they have not gathered? Should they have gone and gathered at a river or something? They would have been busted in there too. I, I think what this really serves to do is to kind of debunk the myth that the devil has been trying to lead the church into, that we live in a, in a time of security and religious freedom and safety, when in reality, what's been happening over the past several hundred years is that the church has been fattened up in a lot of ways. And I'm not saying that you know, Christ's church has, but Christianity in general has been fattened up into believing that because we have religious freedom, that means that you know, we, can, we can be less defensive or perhaps less offensive in, in our approach to the world around us. And what we're seeing now is, is essentially the tightening of the noose and the, the lack of 
strength and the lack of stability among, amongst Christianity just in a general sense to be able to withstand that. But I think, you know, regardless of what the, the, the laws were that were broken or the specifics of the situation, I'm hesitant to comment on that too because I feel like without knowing the full details of the story, you know, we really can't make a, a judgment one way or the other. But the, well, we can, but you know what I mean? I, I wouldn't want to comment on that. But I, I think that we need to have the realization and the understanding that even though we live in, quote, a Christian country, we really don't. And, and it's, it's not only going to continue to be situations like this where perhaps maybe there was a law or an ordinance or something that was broken, but it's, those laws and those ordinances are going to continue to become more restrictive. And we need to be careful that we are not accepting Mm-hmm. the messages that are being they're being put to us, especially those who are in higher education. I don't know how many people in this room have attended college, but these things are are as subtle as the day is long. And if you aren't constantly on your guard, you begin to adopt it. I've experienced that in my own life and in my own walk, where without realizing it, I was I was buying into to you know ideas of of tolerance and and that's a way of survival and and things like that. We have to be on guard about it. So, while you have the microphone, Brother Rob, you said we should be not accepting. How do we do that? Sorry. How do we do? How are we not? How do we demonstrate that we're not accepting? I think in my life, I've I've learned how to do that in terms of when the situation comes and the Spirit moves me to speak, that I speak. And regardless of the regardless of regardless or? of the consequences and regardless of who I'm with with and I have to say I, I work in an environment that that actually ascri- um, uh, you know therapists and, and, and therapy ascribes very strongly to the Eastern religions uh, perspectives it's it's been incorporated into psychotherapy very heavily and it's been gaining empirical evidence as being effective and so there are a lot of therapists who buy into the new age stuff and the Eastern religion stuff and um, I work with a lot of people who are agnostics and atheists, and we've had these kinds of conversations. And ultimately, surprisingly, they respect me when I speak out. They don't agree with me. But it's, for me, it's been the ability to say, I understand that you don't agree with me, but this is where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. And, I'm not, and I'm not saying that you, know, you need to change right now, but this is where I, where I stand, and I don't expect you to try to change me. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason... They've been respectful of that, but I don't expect that to continue That's a forever. Good, thank you. In other words, speak. If you feel that led by the Lord, you speak. Brother Jonathan. We cannot deny that we live in a society that demands comfort. Everything about us is what's comfortable to us. And if anything, what, what we're watching on these videos should inspire us as much as Paul's story has inspired us to do what is right and to be to accept the bravery that God has given us, like it says in Second Timothy one seven, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. And to that end, we need to take on a mantle that takes on the world. When it denies Christ, we stand up for Christ. Because I'll be long dead before. I stay a silent that the stones have to cry out. Thank you. Anyone else have a comment on that? Um, I didn't have a comment on that, but um, something that came across my mind was the fact that, honestly, each and every one of us in this room, we're a bit biased. Rightfully so. As in, we know what the truth is, we know Christ, we know God, but I'm going to be a bit objective for a second, because the reality is that all these worldviews that you've kind of put forth, you know, we're forced to have to... I guess, live with one another in this world. And so because of that, they, there are so many things put in place to provide equal opportunity or equal um, rights and these types of things, supposedly, although you know, we see that that's not necessarily the case. I think um, because of that, we see that there's a huge uh, pull of political correctness kind of seeping in our society. And then for a more biased comment, isn't political correctness a bit of a paradox? Mm-hmm. Um, just one question. Do you feel in some way intimidated or leery when you're at work or at school and you see something wrong or better not say anything? Is, is that a good thing to do? Is it, is, is it right? I'm just asking. You, should you feel that way? 
Yeah, David, just think about that. I don't really have a comment as much of a question. Um, with all the laws that are being passed in legislation and um, in the different areas, I, I'm from Canada, but what is our, and I'm, I'm looking for an answer here because something I struggle with, but what is our role or, or our responsibility as Christians in the political realm? Is that part of your, the other form that was mentioned earlier? Was that, part, that question part of that form you were talking about, Brother Eckhart? Or whoever is what? Roman Bell, Ron Bellman, yeah. So anyone want to respond to David now? Well, what, what is our role as Christians? You know, I've been struggling with that for a while because you, when you hear of perceived injustices, you know, this, what we've seen about the Phoenix preacher may or, not, may or may not be a, a true injustice, right? I have the same right? in my mind, you know, yeah. Right. But um, I think you hit it on the head when you said, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. Regardless of any specific instance, we know that this is there. We also know that they hated Christ. They're going to hate us. The continuation of this passage, though, is, wherefore... Because of this, wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, and it goes through. Um, I think Brother Rob's point, as we go through life, we will be put in situations, each and every one of us in different situations. We need to, yes, we will be fearful. Yes, we won't have the words. Yes, all of these things, but God brings to our remembrance just in time if we are believing in his word, there might be the time for some person in a certain place, you know, Queen Esther. She was in the right place to be active politically. Um, the blind man, he wasn't able really to be active politically, but for those around him, he was able to be active and, and he was able to be a testimony. And he was brought before the courts and he proclaimed what was true. And I think that's what will end up having to do. Thank you. Just on uh, David's question, uh, there was another clip I didn't put on there because they were sort of similar, and Bob got a question too. Um, there's a hot spot in Michigan, Dearborn, Michigan, uh, the Muslim community there. And this is, this is no strings attached, okay? Uh, they're going into some Arabic festival, and you've got some Christians standing there with tracts, just handing them out. And the police come and arrest them. For what purpose? You're disturbing the peace. They're not preaching. They're just handing out tracts. So who's created the, the ruckus? It's the people that are creating the ruckus. They can accept or reject. But when you talk about what is our role, sh so can we be passive about this? Or should we not be active about that? I think let's talk about that. Is that something we can be active about? Or just wait until things happen to us. So, sorry, we had, a, we had Bob Braga here as well. I, I, I was raised in a home where I was always taught that, you know, we had responsibilities as citizens. Uh, and so because of that, we took an active part in our society. We voted. We uh, tried to express ourselves and wherever it was uh, allowed. But one of the things that I'm seeing that really kind of alarms me uh, as a member of the church, is when I see our members uh, to a degree being used by others with political agendas who'd like to stir up our Christian indignation and then use that for political means. I would love to say that there are lots of great Christian politicians out there. Unfortunately, there are not. But they will use whatever videos, whatever thing they might be able to do to try to stir up our righteous indignation, which is, which is true. I don't think that we should be passive and just sit back, but what we really need to do is to exercise our faith in the areas where God gives us the responsibilities. I don't think Jesus went out seeking to be an activist. He shared the gospel. He shared his love. He shared the, 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 the will of the Father with every single individual that he came in contact with. We live in a world where we're, we're, we are influenced by a political system that we are not part of. 
we're part of physically because we sit here, but we forget that our kingdom is a kingdom that is not of this world. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, we need to be able to rise above the petty politics of the worlds around us and simply live a life as a life of Christ to the world that we, that we live in. That's, a, that's, that's where love will always out-trump activity politically. We, and, and by loving, that may mean that we have to share the gospel in, to people who don't necessarily want to hear it. But I'm almost more concerned that when we start worrying about the, standing up for the truth in our society, we need to stand up for the truth in our church. You know, I, 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 I've said a long, a long time ago, uh, I don't worry about Muslims in the country taking over. I really don't. I don't believe that Muslims someday are necessarily going to take away my freedoms. I see more Christians that condemn my radical Christianity and my willingness to stand up for the Word of God and all of the Word of God than I do anybody politically attacking me. And I find it in the church. We find it in our own congregations sometime. We need to stand up for the truth of the Word of God, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and make sure that we're grounded on that. The world will take care of itself. Our kingdom is one that we have to earnestly contend for within our own ranks as well. Thank you, Brother. Well, we have one more comment, and it's time to go. Brother Bob had his hand up here. I'm going to steal a comment on my way down there. <clears throat> uh, in the early first century, we had faced a situation where we were persecuted by the government very explicitly. And uh, one of the great apologists of the era said, we don't speak great things, we live them. And they overcame and toppled the greatest you know, Roman Empire through their lives and their willingness to sacrifice, which I'm not sure we have. So I found after doing the Truth Project with some people in our church that I've also been subtly influenced by relativism. Um, and I also found that, uh, that a lot of coworkers that are Christians are also. And so this has made me much more aware of that. And I challenge people. I challenge myself. And I challenge go out for lunch with some Christians. And uh, if they say something or we're having a conversation and they, uh, they point out that, you know, that whatever, um, I'll say, well, what does the Bible say? And I don't know. I'm like, well, do you believe the Bible? Well, yeah. Okay, well, this is what the Bible says. And just challenge the relative worldview that's in pervading our acquaintances, our church, our friends, and ourselves. I think that's what, to me, this brings out. See, that, that's why I mentioned about that survey thing. You know, how many percentage of Christians? There's, there's lies, there's truth, and there's statistics. What's behind the statistic? You know, Oprah openly says, I am a Christian but we understand what her understanding of Christianity is. So just keep on doing the truth. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been a great uh, audience.